Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. Aloha, everyone. I mentioned this in my last episode, but I thought I'd better mention it again just in case. I'm still recording in the beautiful state of Hawaii. Since I don't have a professional studio or a studio of any kind, you may hear some roosters crowing in the background. Chickens and roosters run wild on some of the islands, and the roosters crow 24-7. There's not much I can do about the noise, so again, Just pretend you're in Hawaii as you listen. Now, all rise. Court is in session. We're all familiar with the expression, man's inhumanity to man, which is a quote from a poem called, From Man Was Made to Mourn, a Dirge. The Scottish poet Robert Burns wrote this poem in the year 1785, It refers to humanity's ability to do horrible things to fellow humans. The fate of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom are perfect examples of man's inhumanity to man. It is incredibly difficult to comprehend what was done to these two individuals. Shannon Gale Christian and Hugh Christopher Newsom Jr. were from Knoxville, Tennessee. On Saturday, January 6th, 2007, they were carjacked, kidnapped, robbed, tortured, raped, and murdered. Shannon Gale Christian was born April 29, 1985, in Nacogdoche, Texas. She moved from Louisiana to Tennessee with her family in 1997 and graduated from Farragut High School in 2003. Shannon was a senior majoring in sociology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and also worked two jobs. She planned on graduating in December of 2007. Shannon Christian was 21 years old when she was murdered. Hugh Christopher Chris Newsom Jr. was born September 21, 1983 in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was a former baseball player for the Halls High School Red Devils, graduating in 2002. After high school, he attended Pellissippi State Technical Community College and became a carpenter. Chris Newsom was 23 years old when he was murdered. Knoxville is a city located on the Tennessee River in eastern Tennessee. In Knoxville, the summers are long, hot, and muggy and the winters are short, very cold, and wet. Over the course of a year, the temperature typically varies from 31 degrees Fahrenheit to 88 degrees Fahrenheit and is rarely below 17 degrees Fahrenheit or above 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Knoxville is the third largest city in the state of Tennessee with a population of 184,000. The demographics in Knoxville are 76% white, 16% black, 
or African-American, 3% two or more races, and 1% Asian. University of Tennessee in Knoxville is the largest university in the state. It has a current total enrollment of 27,500. Being primarily a college town, it makes Knoxville a perfect place for someone to live without owning a vehicle. A 24-7 Wall Street report lists Knoxville as one of the 50 worst cities to live in. And it wasn't the only city in Tennessee to make the list. Using 2016 U.S. Census data from approximately 600 cities with populations of more than 50,000, Knoxville came in at number 36 on the list. Some of the most dangerous areas in Knoxville are Park City, Morningside, and Park Ridge. The location where the murders took place is just a few short miles from each one of these areas. Tennessee is home to the iconic Grand Ole Opry, and Knoxville has a number of its own attractions. The beautiful Great Smoky Mountains and amazing food are among the most popular. The city is also known as the streaking capital due to the high number of streaking events that occurred here in the 70s. Tennessee is very popular for being the hometown to quite a few celebrities. Aretha Franklin, Tina Turner, Miley Cyrus, Dolly Parton, Morgan Freeman, Quentin Tarantino, and so many more. But like all big cities, some areas are nicer than others. On the evening of January 6, 2007, Shannon and Chris were planning on having dinner together and then heading over to a friend's home to attend a birthday party. Despite being 21 years old, Shannon was a thoughtful young woman who kept her parents informed of her whereabouts. She let them know where she was, what she was doing, and when she would be home. It was a Saturday afternoon and Shannon went over to the Washington Ridge Apartments where her friend Kara Seward lived to get ready for the party. January 6th was a cold day. The high was only 54 degrees. Shannon and Kara hung out until 8 p.m. when Kara left on her own to go to the party. Shannon stayed behind to wait for Chris. He stopped at an ATM in the Hall's community area at 8.47 p.m., withdrawing $100. At about 9 p.m., he dropped his friend Josh Anderson off at the party. He let his friends know that he was taking Shannon out to grab a bite to eat and they would be over after that. Kara called Shannon to let her know that Chris was on his way over to the apartment to pick her up. It was only a 10 minute drive from the Washington Ridge Apartments to the home where the birthday party was being held in Hall's community. At 10 p.m., when Shannon and Chris had not shown up at the party, their friends began calling and texting, asking them where they were, but they weren't getting a response. At 11 p.m., two of Chris's friends went to the Washington Ridge Apartments to check on them. What a good group of friends. I mean, they continually check on each other and keep each other posted. It's no wonder they were concerned about where their friends were. When they got to the apartment complex, they discovered that Chris's truck was in the parking lot, but Shannon's 2005 Toyota 4Runner was missing. Shannon and Chris were last seen at the Washington Ridge Apartments. They never made it to the party, and their friends and family never saw them again. 
Shannon's dad said that she called at 12.30 a.m. that night to say she would be home around 3 a.m. He thought she sounded fairly normal, but based on the evidence in this case, Shannon had already been held captive for a couple of hours when she made that call. Cell phone records indicate the call came from the Cherry Street area, which is very close to a house being rented by a man named LaMarcus Davidson. Shannon was last seen wearing jeans, hot pink high heels, and navy blue, hot pink, and white striped sweater carrying a gray purse. Chris was last seen wearing jeans, black and silver size nine and a half Nike Shocks athletic shoes, a blue sweater with a white collar, and a baseball cap. It was determined that Shannon and Chris went missing between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. that night. This is based on the fact that Chris was at the ATM around 9 p.m. and his friends came to the apartment to check on him at about 11 p.m. Dina Christian, Shannon's mother, woke up with a bad feeling on Sunday morning, January 7th. Shannon wasn't home or answering phone calls. She became even more worried when Shannon's best friend Kara called and said that the two were no-shows at the party. Then, Shannon's boss phoned to say Shannon never came to work. This sent Shannon's mom into a panic. Shannon's mom called local hospitals and phoned Chris's family. Shannon and Chris's families began searching for the couple. When they weren't able to find them, they notified the Knox County Sheriff's Department and filed missing persons reports for Chris and Shannon. Because Shannon and Chris were adults, law enforcement told the families that they would not search for the couple until 24 hours had passed. They explained to the families that until then, they would need to search for the missing couple themselves. So that's exactly what they did. They began searching for Chris and Shannon on their own. I can't imagine how incredibly frustrating and infuriating that must have been. Shannon's parents started by calling Shannon's cell phone provider to get her cell phone records. With the help of the cell phone provider, they were able to determine that her phone last pinged off the Cherry Street phone tower. While Shannon and Chris's families were filing missing persons reports and beginning to search on their own, a gruesome discovery was made. At about 12.20 p.m. Sunday afternoon, a Norfolk Southern Railroad employee notified the police that they had found a body near the railroad tracks and 9th Avenue in East Knoxville. The body had been badly burned and was still smoking. It was the body of a male. He had been shot with his hands tied behind his back, his eyes covered with a bandana, a sock stuffed in his mouth, his head wrapped in a sweatshirt, and his feet were bare and bound together. On Sunday night, Members of Shannon and Chris's families and friends organized a small search party and went to the Cherry Street area. At this point, they did not know that Chris had been found. They began searching for Shannon's car street by street. It was clear to them that this part of town was not an area that Chris or Shannon would visit. It was in the wee hours of Monday morning on January 8th about 1.30 a.m. when Shannon's father found her 2005 Toyota 4Runner parked at the corner of Chipman and Glider Streets. 
It had been just a little over 24 hours since Chris and Shannon were last seen. Shannon's University of Tennessee Power T decal and a North Face sticker had been removed from the back window. They immediately called the police. Based on court documents, police began to search the vehicle. With the help of family, they were able to determine that a bag of clothes which Shannon was going to donate was missing from the back of her car. Her overnight bag and its contents were missing. The front seats of her vehicle were pushed all the way back and the back seat floorboard was caked with mud. There was a crumpled pack of Newport cigarettes found in the back of the car. Shannon and Chris didn't smoke Newports. The vehicle was then taken into police custody for further analysis. It was Monday morning when investigators came to the Newsom home and broke the horrible news to his mother. They informed her that the burned body found near the railroad tracks was positively identified as her son, Christopher Newsom. Now they have Shannon's abandoned car, Chris's murdered body, but no sign of Shannon. This investigation did not start off well. The families of both Chris and Shannon had filed missing persons reports only to be told they were on their own. Even though Chris and Shannon were adults, their disappearance was extremely out of character for them. They were responsible young adults who kept in close contact with family and friends. They were not the type of kids who just disappeared without notice or without contacting anyone. It was the families who contacted the cell phone provider and obtained location information regarding the last known area where Shannon's cell phone was used. It was the families who began their own search party and it was the families who found Shannon's Toyota 4Runner. The police finally got involved when the families contacted the Knoxville Police Department to let them know they had found Shannon's abandoned car in a sketchy part of town. The Knoxville Police Department Forensic Unit examined Shannon's vehicle for fingerprints, but it appeared that her forerunner had been wiped clean, so no fingerprints could be lifted. Late Monday night, January 8th, at about 11 p.m., forensic examiner Dan Crenshaw found a bank envelope in the back seat of the forerunner. He began processing it for fingerprints. It took a few hours, but on Tuesday, January 9th at 2.45 a.m., Mr. Crenshaw determined that the fingerprints on the bank envelope were a match to a young man named Lamarcus Duvall Davidson. When he looked up the address for Davidson, it came back to a house on Chipman Street, which was very close to where they found Shannon's car and Chris's body. Investigators now believed that Lamarcus Duvall Davidson was involved in the disappearance of Shannon Christian. They began looking into Davidson's history. They found out that he had an outstanding warrant for his arrest for failing to appear in court. Next, investigators obtained a warrant to search Davidson's home. At 1.39 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, officers went to Davidson's house. Nobody was home. From court documents, quote, Officers entered the kitchen and noticed an oddly shaped 32-gallon plastic green garbage can. Fearing someone was hiding in the garbage can, he drew his weapon, lifted the lid, and saw an arm partially covered with fabric. When he touched the arm, 
he knew he had discovered a dead body. Shannon was no longer missing. At 2.04 p.m., Dr. Darinka Malusnik-Polchan, Knox County's medical examiner, arrived to supervise the removal of Shannon's body. At approximately 3.10 p.m., the garbage can with Shannon's body still inside, wrapped in a tarp, and secured with plastic tie wires was removed from the house." Unquote. At this point, investigators stopped their search and applied for a second search warrant. They wanted to make sure the search warrant contained the fact that Shannon's body was found in Davidson's house. Based on court documents, once the search was able to resume, they found, quote, Numerous items that belonged to the victim, including clothing Shannon had in her vehicle, photographs she kept in her vehicle, the gray purse she carried on Saturday night, her pink high heels, her iPod with the inscription, Shannon Christian, Mom and Dad, we love you. Two of Chris's baseball caps, including the one he was last seen wearing, Shannon's camera, Chris's driver's license, a pay stub, from Shannon's work, Shannon's mother's blockbuster card, a CD, and Shannon's personal toiletry items." Unquote. Next, investigators went on the hunt for Davidson. At this point, they knew he was 25 years old and a convicted felon. He was unemployed and didn't own a vehicle. His only source of income came from dealing drugs and he was known to snort coke and smoke marijuana. He was renting the house he lived in on Chipman Street, although he had not paid his January rent. Daphne Sutton, his on-again, off-again girlfriend, was also on the rental agreement. As the investigation gained momentum, Knoxville police tracked down Davidson's girlfriend, Daphne Sutton, who'd lived in the Chipman Street house until just before Shannon and Chris went missing. When they questioned her, she told law enforcement that on Sunday, January 7th, Davidson was at the house with three others, a man named George Thomas, Davidson's half-brother, Latalvis Cobbins, and a woman named Vanessa Coleman. Sutton said she'd last seen Davidson when she dropped him off later that day at the home of a person named Eric Boyd. During the course of the investigation, it was discovered that Davidson owed money to a woman named Ethel Lynn Freeman for furniture he had bought from her. Davidson met Freeman through a mutual friend and Davidson became Freeman's drug connection. In December of 2006, he and some friends helped her move into an apartment at the Washington Ridge Apartments. This is how Davidson, Shannon, and Chris came to be at the same location on January 6, 2007. Shannon was there visiting her friend's apartment to get ready for the party, and Davidson was supposed to swing by Freeman's place around 10 p.m. to make a payment on the furniture. According to Freeman, Davidson never showed up. That Saturday night, Cobbins and Davidson didn't have a vehicle, but they wanted to go to the store. So they left the house and started out on foot. As they left the Chipman Street house together and walked outside, they ran into Eric Boyd. Boyd had borrowed his cousin's car and offered them a ride. Davidson and Cobbins jumped in the car with him. Instead of going to the store, they headed to the Washington Ridge Apartments to meet a woman. 
Maybe they were going to visit Freeman before they got sidetracked. At about the same time, Chris arrived at the apartment of Shannon's friend, where she was waiting for him. Shannon gathered up her personal belongings, and they locked up the apartment and headed down to the parking lot together. When Boyd pulled into the parking lot, he supposedly pointed to the apartment he wanted to visit. He stopped the vehicle, placed it in park, and left the car running. Davidson didn't have a vehicle, and he had been entertaining the idea of carjacking someone. He shared his idea with Boyd and Cobbins earlier that evening. When Davidson spotted Chris and Shannon in the parking lot that night, he made up his mind right then and there to follow through with his plan. Shannon had been seated in the driver's seat of her SUV with the door open, hugging or kissing Chris, who was standing in her open doorway beside the SUV. Apparently, Davidson made eye contact with Boyd and both knowing what they were going to do next, jumped out of Boyd's car at the same time. They ambushed and abducted Chris and Shannon, forcing them at gunpoint into the back seat of Shannon's SUV. Davidson and Boyd proceeded to blindfold Chris and Shannon and tie their hands behind their backs. Davidson then instructed Cobbins to follow them back to Davidson's house at 2316 Chipman Street in Boyd's car while Davidson and Boyd drove Shannon's car. Cobbins did as he was told. Clearly, Davidson had accomplices on this Saturday night. Besides Davidson, there were actually four others involved in the crimes that took place. There were three other men and one woman. Finding information about the crimes these people committed was much easier than finding out who these people actually were. Let's just take a few minutes to review what I was able to find out about these individuals prior to the murders. In December 2006, Stacy Lawson of Lebanon, Kentucky drove her boyfriend, George Thomas, Davidson's half-brother Latalvis Cobbins, and his girlfriend, Vanessa Coleman, from Kentucky to live with Davidson at his home in Knoxville, Tennessee. None of them had vehicles or jobs. Stacy Lawson didn't stay, and she was not involved in any of the crimes. Lamarcus Duvall Slim Davidson was born June 13, 1981. He was considered the leader of the group. Davidson was originally from Memphis and had been released from prison in August of 2006. He had just served five years in Tennessee on a previous felony conviction for carjacking and aggravated robbery. Davidson was also indicted for a second robbery, which was committed at a pizza hut one day after the murders of Shannon and Chris. At the time of his arrest, Davidson was 25 years old. Davidson had attended high school and had an above average intelligence. He had a tough upbringing, but nothing that would explain his actions on the night he murdered Shannon and Chris. Davidson's father played no role in his life. Davidson's mother was physically abusive and neglected her children. She was also a crack addict and a prostitute. Davidson moved back and forth between his mother's house and his aunt's house, attending a different school nearly every year. Davidson's uncle, Mr. Wilburn, confirmed the violence and the instability of life in Davidson's mother's home. Davidson's sister, Mrs. Boddy, testified to the very difficult childhood 
she and Davidson endured, detailing the violence and neglect they suffered because of their mother's drug use and alcohol use. Davidson spent some time in a children's home, and most of the people he came into contact with at the home say he was doing really well in the structured environment. He became active in school and church activities, and he was helpful to those around him. Eventually, he was placed in a foster home with his foster parents, Mr. and Mrs. Rudd. He attended a private Christian high school, was provided tutoring assistance, went to church, played football, and had friends in a supportive foster family. They said he was well-behaved, respectful, and never violent. But Davidson ended up violating their house rule of no drug use or drugs in the house. Twice, they found marijuana in Davidson's room. After finding marijuana in Davidson's room the second time, Mr. and Mrs. Rudd made Davidson leave their home. Davidson moved in with a coach from his high school until he got a job and rented an apartment. Despite this support and assistance, Davidson, at the age of 19, was convicted of an aggravated robbery and carjacking that occurred in Madison County, Tennessee on September 6, 2000. On January 18, 2000, David was sentenced to serve eight years in the penitentiary. He did have a chaotic and unstable childhood, but life got better as he got older. Davidson had a lot of support, especially in his later teen years. Despite the fact that he was given opportunities to better himself, had above average intelligence, and no apparent psychological issues, Davidson inexplicably chose a life of crime and violence. At the time of the murders, Davidson was in an off-again, on-again relationship with a woman named Daphne Sutton. They began dating in the fall of 2006, just a few months before the murders. Her name was on the lease along with Davidson's for the Chipman Street house. But Davidson became violent and physically abusive towards Daphne, and this caused her to move out. Even though she was no longer living in the house with Davidson, they still remained in contact. But Davidson was an angry man. He was very angry about the breakup, even though it was his fault. He was angry with the fact that he had a bunch of uninvited freeloaders living in his house. He claims to have invited his half-brother Cobbins, but was not expecting the others and was not happy about them being there. He was broke, had no car, no job, and his girlfriend has left him. Latalvis Darnell Rome Cobbins was born December 20th, 1982. Cobbins was 25 at the time of the murders. He and Davidson are half-brothers. Cobbins' mother was described as unstable. His father didn't want to have anything to do with him. He was described by his siblings and cousins as a protector who looked after his younger sisters. He would babysit nephews. He was very protective of his three younger sisters. His cousins also describe him as fun, loving, friendly, and full of energy, a lovely child. Cobbins was no stranger to crime or violence. In 2003, Cobbins had been convicted of third-degree attempted robbery in New York. He was also charged with assaulting a correctional officer while incarcerated and pending trial. 
Latalvis Cobbins is another man who did not have an ideal upbringing, but again, nothing that would explain his behavior on that night. Vanessa Lynn Coleman was born on June 29, 1988. She's from Lebanon, Kentucky. Vanessa Coleman was 19 at the time of the murders. She was also the girlfriend of Latalvis Cobbins, Davidson's half-brother. Her mother and father were extremely supportive of Vanessa, and to this day, her father declares his love and support for his daughter. George Giovanni Detroit Thomas was born January 23, 1983. Thomas was 24 at the time of the murders. Eric Duane E. Boyd was born February 18, 1972. He was 35 at the time of the murders. WBIR reports, quote, Boyd grew up in the Mechanicsville area and attended the now-closed Rule High School until dropping out after the ninth grade, according to the pre-sentence investigation. Boyd has longtime Knoxville ties, including family here. He spent at least part of his childhood in Lonsdale and picked up several juvenile petitions for offenses that included vandalism and breaking and entering. By his early 20s, it's clear he was comfortable committing crimes. Indeed, he was breaking the law when his co-defendants were still children. He took part in an armed robbery spree in 1994 with a co-defendant that laid the path for his friendship with future killer Lamarcus Davidson. Boyd, that authorities know of, held up nine stores and fast food restaurants in about a two and a half month period starting in March 1994, unquote. Boyd and Davidson met when they were in prison together and became friends. Although I don't use their nicknames in this episode, I did call them out here as I introduced them. Davidson is Slim, Thomas is Detroit, Boyd is E, and Cobbins is Rome. Now that we know who committed these crimes, let's get back to the story. With Davidson and Boyd driving Shannon's forerunner and Cobbins driving Boyd's car, they all drive back to Davidson's house at 2316 Chipman Street with Shannon and Chris tied up in the back seat. WBIR reported the following. Thomas and Coleman later told police that Boyd did go into the Chipman Street house after the carjacking. Cobbins recalled during his testimony seeing Davidson walk into the house with the girl and Eric Boyd come in right behind Davidson holding the guy. Quote, the girl has got a bandana around her eyes and her hands are tied in front of her. Boyd comes in with the guy holding his arm. I notice the guy has a bandana around his eyes and his hands are tied behind him. Thomas told investigators he saw Boyd lead a blindfolded Chris Newsom, or old boy as he referred to him, out of the house and into the night, unquote. When Vanessa Coleman was interviewed by detectives, she stated that, quote, George Thomas and Latalvis Cobbins had walked into the house first, and the girl was taken into the front bedroom used by Davidson, and she heard the girl say, stop, don't, 
quit. Unquote. And then Coleman states that she went to sleep. Or did she? It's hard to imagine she could go to sleep when a girl is brought into the house against her will right in front of you. Coleman also stated that she never saw the girl again. Coleman's mother was with her at the interview and spoke to her privately during an intermission. No one knows what she said to her daughter, but when the interview resumed, Coleman was much more forthcoming. She shared with detectives that she did see Shannon again. In fact, she said she saw Davidson kill Shannon by, quote, snapping her neck, unquote. There may be some truth in her story, but snapping her neck prior to tying her up and stuffing her in the garbage can contradicts the ME's findings. Even though she's providing more detail, she is still lying by omission or just out and out lying. Vanessa Coleman's interview with detectives was not recorded. Detectives took notes and testified in court regarding her interview using those notes. The following is taken from the detective's testimony using court transcripts. Detectives testified, quote, that she saw Davidson tie Shannon up with a wide strip of cloth in a chair. And then he, she saw the female victim laid down, was laid down by Davidson on an air mattress and her hands were tied above her head. At this point, the she tells me that the female victim still had her clothes on. Davidson comes into the living room with Cobbins and Thomas. Coleman says that she asked about the girl and they refused to tell her anything and told her to go into the back bedroom. Unquote. Coleman admitted that she had touched the bindings used to tie Shannon up. From this statement, the prosecution inferred that it would be reasonable to believe that Coleman had tied up or helped to tie up Shannon and or make the bindings out of the sheets. In her statements to police, Coleman admitted that, quote, at least two times prior to Shannon's death, Coleman checked on Shannon, who was tied up in the front bedroom. From this evidence, the jury could reasonably infer that Coleman assisted the co-defendants by helping to guard Shannon during the time period in which the murder, aggravated kidnapping, and rapes occurred. Coleman admitted in one of her statements that at some point on Sunday, she, Davidson, Cobbins, and Thomas left the house to ride around in Shannon's forerunner, and they left the victim alive in the house alone and tied up. Even though Coleman asserted in one of her statements that she herself was being held as a hostage by her co-defendants, the jury could find that assertion not credible and could infer from Coleman's admission about riding around with the co-defendants after they left Shannon alone and tied up that she was in full cooperation with the defendants in the commission of the various crimes. Coleman saw Davidson walk the victim through the house while the victim was not wearing any clothes below her waist. As the jury does not have to find Coleman's timeline of events credible and can still find as true parts of Coleman's statement, the jury could reasonably infer that Coleman knew Davidson intended to rape 
the victim, unquote. Coleman also stated that she saw Davidson and Thomas leave in the Forerunner while Cobbin stayed at the house with her. Coleman stated that Davidson took a large floral comforter with him and Coleman never saw the comforter again. While they were gone, Coleman went into the bedroom and saw Shannon still tied up and blindfolded. When they returned, Coleman said that Thomas told her that Shannon, quote, was being quiet because she believed if she went along with what they were doing to her, she would be set free, unquote. Sifting through all the many, many lies from each of these individuals involved, it is extremely difficult to find the truth behind what happened to Chris and Shannon and what the timeline of events was. The testimony from each of the defendants is incredibly inconsistent and each one of them is doing their best to minimize their involvement in the entire ordeal. They are trying even harder to distance themselves from the most brutal portions of the crime and pin the blame on each other. What did happen to Chris? Based on the medical examiner's testimony, she stated that the injuries to Chris's anal genital region showed signs of healing. This means that he was raped a couple of hours before he was killed. This also means that there is approximately two hours unaccounted for between the time of his rape and the time of his death. It would seem that they initially brought him to the house. He was raped by at least one male participant because semen was found in his rectum. Also, because of the extensive damage to his anal genital region, it is determined that he was brutally raped with a foreign object. In all the testimony by each of these individuals, it is not clear where Chris was actually raped or by who. He could have been raped while still at the house, where Davidson, Vanessa, Boyd, Cobbins, and Thomas were all hanging out together, or he could have been raped elsewhere. It is not known. Davidson's house on Chipman Street was very small. It was only 805 square feet. Most rooms inside the home had no doors. Instead, they were hanging blankets over the doorways, so the rooms were basically wide open. According to Stacy Lawson, Thomas's girlfriend, quote, you got no peace in that house. It was loud all the time. You could hear everybody's conversations. You could be in the living room and you could hear. I remember it was Sutton and Davidson in their bedroom and you could hear them having relations. The same with Coleman and Cobbins. You could hear them in the back bedroom having relations. There were no doors in that house. There was a sliding plastic thing on the bathroom door that you really couldn't even call a door. And they used blankets as doors." Unquote. Daphne Sutton, Davidson's girlfriend, described the sleeping arrangements at 2316 Chipman Street during this time as follows. She and Davidson slept in the front bedroom, Cobbins and Coleman slept in the back bedroom, and Thomas slept on a pallet in the living room. What this means is that no matter where you are in this house, you will hear everything going on. If you can hear someone having relations in another room, you will definitely hear someone being violently raped and beaten. These people have tried to say that they didn't hear a thing. They didn't hear Shannon or Chris being brutally, violently raped and beaten. 
The evidence showed that each one of these defendants was in the small 805-foot house during the time that Shannon was in the front bedroom being raped and physically abused. According to the medical examiner, quote, Shannon sustained a tremendous amount of severe blunt force injuries, unquote. When someone is enduring this type of violent attack, there's going to be noise, movement, crying, muffled screaming, impact noises, grunting, voices, etc. Somebody heard something. It would be impossible for anyone in that house to hear nothing. Obviously, they are all lying. Not only did they hear, they were all active participants in one way or another. The following are witness statements based on court documents. Sandra Killeen Bible lived in the house on the corner of Chipman and Glider Streets. She stated that she had not seen Shannon's vehicle there at midnight while she sat on her front porch smoking a cigarette. In fact, she said she had never seen the vehicle in the neighborhood. On Sunday at 1.45 a.m., Jerome Arnold was watching television at his Chipman Street residence a block from Mr. Davidson's house when he heard three fairly evenly spaced pops coming from the direction of the train tracks. On Sunday, January 7th, around 12.30 a.m., Xavier Jenkins, an employee of Waste Connections on Chipman Street, arrived for work and waited in his car in the parking area outside the Waste Connections gated parking lot for a coworker to arrive. From where Mr. Jenkins was parked, he could see across the street to Davidson's house and noticed Shannon's vehicle parked in front of it. The porch lights were on and the house seemed to be pretty busy for that time of night. He had never seen Shannon's vehicle before that evening. Mr. Jenkins briefly left to go to a nearby convenience store and when he returned, he waited in his vehicle parking across the street from Davidson's house. Around 12.50 a.m., he saw Shannon's vehicle pull away from where it had been parked in front of Davidson's house and come in his direction. As the vehicle passed Mr. Jenkins, it slowed down and he saw four men in it. The driver, wearing a hoodie, looked at him kind of strange and kind of mean mugged him. James Bradley Presley, also an employee of Waste Connections, arrived at work between 1.30 and 2 a.m. on Sunday morning and almost collided with a silver SUV in the parking lot as he drove toward the gate to open it. The vehicle drove away as he exited his vehicle to open the gates, but the occupants, two in the front and at least one in the back, looked real hard at him. When Mr. Presley completed his shift between 5.30 and 6 a.m., he again saw the same SUV sitting in the parking lot. He looked briefly in its direction and then began to walk away. At that time, he heard two or three loud popping sounds that seemed to have originated in the vicinity of the nearby railroad tracks. Mr. Presley thought little about the sounds and proceeded to lock the gate and leave. He then saw smoke coming from the area of the tracks, but ignored it. This contradicts the statement made by Jerome Arnold, who said he heard three pops on Sunday at 1.45 a.m., not 5.30 a.m. On Sunday at 6.30 a.m., when Mr. Jenkins returned to Waste Connections from running his route, he saw Shannon's vehicle with an orange University of Tennessee Power T decal on the window, 
parked facing the train tracks in front of Waste Connections on Chipman Street. The vehicle appeared to be out of place, and when Mr. Jenkins looked in the vehicle, he saw no one in it. On Sunday at 7.45 a.m., when Roy Thurman arrived for work at a sandblasting company in the Chipman Street area, he saw smoke rising from the directions of the train tracks. J.D. Ford, a locomotive engineer with Norfolk Southern Railway Corporation, left the John Sevier yard off of Rutledge Pike in a train at 12.05 p.m. on Sunday, January 7, 2007. After crossing over Cherry Street, he discovered along the track the naked body of a deceased male. Fred Duffy, an assistant track supervisor with Norfolk Southern, had inspected the area at 9 a.m. that day and had not seen a body at that time. If Chris Newsom's dead body isn't found along the tracks until after 9 a.m. on Sunday, where has he been all this time? We may never know. And that will do it for part one. Please join me for part two, where we will hear about the arrest, police interviews, and autopsy results. <gasps> Thank you for joining me on Crime.